0: Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to talk about neonatal respiratory distress. A few months ago, we talked about newborns in general and how big an adjustment it is to be born. And there might not be any bigger change than what happens in the respiratory system. Before being born, gas exchange only happens in the placenta, the alveoli are full of fluid, there's hardly any blood flowing through the pulmonary arteries because the resistance is so high, and any breathing motions are just for practice. All of that changes in a matter of minutes after delivery, and somehow, at least for most babies, it all goes remarkably smoothly. Still, things go wrong often enough for respiratory distress to be one of the main reasons for NICU admissions, and that's what we'll focus on here. As usual, we'll start out with what's normal. The whole process of moving from breathing amniotic fluid to breathing air is referred to as transitioning, and it starts well before a baby is actually born. In the days and weeks before delivery, the alveolar cells start building up surfactant, which you remember from physiology class makes it easier to move air in and out of the lungs without completely collapsing the alveoli. Once it's time to be born, all the squeezing that happens from uterine contractions and passing through the birth canal compresses the thorax and increases fluid absorption both mechanically and by triggering adrenaline release. Even after all of that, there's still a fair amount of fluid in the lungs to deal with, most of it ends up being absorbed into the circulation and excreted in the urine, and anyone who slept in the same room as a newborn can tell you that some of it also gets coughed out. When those first few breaths of air get into the lungs, the increased oxygen concentration dilates the pulmonary blood vessels and drops the resistance. That change in resistance is one of the major drivers to reroute blood away from reentering the systemic circulation through the ductus arteriosus and into the pulmonary arteries instead. From there, oxygen saturation steadily rise from 60 to 65% at one minute after delivery up to 85 to 95% 10 minutes after being born. A normal newborn respiratory rate is 30 to 60 breaths per minute, and it's important to count for the full minute. If you don't, you can end up being fooled by periodic breathing and get more worried than you need to be. Periodic breathing is a pattern of repetitive pauses in breathing that are anywhere from 5 to 10 seconds long followed by normal or slightly faster than normal breaths before the cycle repeats again. Those pauses in breathing might be associated with brief desaturations, but they're almost always self-resolving and rarely anything to worry about. Periodic breathing is more common in premature infants, but it can be normal for everyone and usually goes away by around 6 months old as the brain and respiratory centers mature. Like with any other patient, the first step when you have a newborn in respiratory distress is to get the history and do an exam. The history usually doesn't take too much, especially in the hospital where the mother's prenatal history was refreshed right before delivery. But it's important to look at the gestational age, any complications during pregnancy, and exactly how long after birth the symptoms started to help you pare down the list of what could be going wrong. On the exam, newborns in respiratory distress look a lot like anyone else who's having trouble breathing. Tachypnea is one of the most common signs and can be a response to low oxygen, high carbon dioxide, or metabolic acidosis. Neonates can also go apneic when they're in distress, but that's usually a sign that things have gotten pretty bad or that there are some systemic problems to go along with whatever is happening in the lungs. Retractions are another good indicator that breathing is hard enough that the baby is having to use accessory muscles to move enough air. Breath sounds can give you a few hints about what might be happening and start to localize the problem. We covered this in our episode on respiratory distress in general, but we'll do a quick recap here. Sturter sounds a lot like snoring and points toward an obstruction somewhere in the nasopharynx. Strider is a high-pitched, monophonic sound, like a whistle, that's produced when there's obstruction at the glottis, larynx, or subglottic area. Wheezing is another high-pitched sound, but in this case it's polyphonic, more like a pipe organ than a whistle, because it's caused by obstruction of several airways with different diameters in the chest. The last sound to mention is grunting, which is caused by sudden closure of the glottis while the baby tries to maintain reserve volume and prevent atelectasis while they exhale. Of course, you shouldn't limit your exam to just the lungs. Especially in neonates, cardiovascular disease can present with respiratory distress, so pay attention to the heart sounds, pulses, and liver size and position. A good head-to-toe exam for any dysmorphic features, whether they're chest wall abnormalities that can cause mechanical problems, or other findings that might point you toward a more generalized syndrome is also important. Once you evaluate the patient, it's time to start thinking about underlying causes. As you might imagine, there are way more than we could possibly talk about in one episode, so we'll try to stick to what's likely to be high yield for your patients and on your next exam. One of the earliest things that can go sideways for an infant is meconium aspiration, Fortunately, it also puts itself on your radar from the beginning if the amniotic fluid comes out stained with meconium. In fact, all you really need to diagnose meconium aspiration syndrome is meconium stained fluid and respiratory distress without another identifiable source. Aspirating anything into the lungs is bad, and that's extra true for something thick and sticky like meconium. Aspirated meconium can obstruct small airways and cause air trapping and hyperinflation and progresses to pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum if it isn't resolved. There's also a risk of chemical pneumonitis and surfactant inactivation because the meconium itself is acidic, which gives meconium aspiration a similar appearance on chest x-ray to respiratory distress syndrome. Management of meconium aspiration syndrome is primarily supportive stepping your way up from supplemental oxygen to CPAP to intubation and ventilation, depending on what the patient needs. Prevention, on the other hand, is one area that's actually changed a lot in the last several years. It used to be that the neonatal resuscitation program recommended endotracheal suctioning immediately after birth for any infant who had meconium-stained fluid, no matter what they looked like. Then, studies showed that for vigorous infants— the ones with heart rates over 100, normal tone, and good respiratory effort, intubating with a suction catheter actually led to more complications than benefits. So now we hold off on endotracheal suctioning except for the babies who are struggling. Transient tachypnea of the newborn, or TTN, is another common cause of early respiratory distress. Remember all the alveolar fluid I mentioned earlier? TTN happens when it takes longer than expected to clear out of the lungs, causing the infant to have tachypnea and respiratory distress anywhere from one to three days after delivery. X-rays will show diffuse parenchymal infiltrates, similar to what you might see in an adult with heart failure, and classically, especially for exams, fluid in the fissure, most obviously on the right side. Looking at an AP or PA chest X-ray, it looks like a bright white line across the middle of the right lung field in the horizontal fissure. Aside from fluid in the fissure, the second most important thing to remember about TTN is that it's usually a self-limited problem. In most cases, the fluid is moving, just more slowly than the lungs would like. Supportive care with supplemental oxygen, or maybe a little CPAP to help drive fluid out of the lungs and into the circulation, is about all you need. Probably the biggest concern people have when it comes to newborns in respiratory distress is respiratory distress syndrome, or RDS. RDS is caused by a deficiency in surfactant, which leads to increased surface tension in the alveoli and causes them to collapse. These areas of microatelectasis show up as diffuse granular infiltrates on x-ray, and like we said earlier, looks a lot like what you would see in meconium aspiration. Most infants produce enough surfactant to keep their lungs open by around 35 weeks gestation, so respiratory distress syndrome is most common in infants born before the 35-week mark. These babies develop severe distress with grunting, retractions, and cyanosis within hours of birth. Mild cases can sometimes get by with just CPAP, but a lot need intubation and surfactant administration to recover. With the right supportive care, most cases resolve by the third or fourth day of life. Let's wrap the episode up with a few other quick hit diagnoses. Infants who have noisy breathing or cyanosis that gets worse with feeds and better with crying probably have coanal atresia a blockage of one or both of the posterior nasal passages. When you take a minute to think through the physiology, the triggers for getting worse and better make a lot of sense. Feeding prevents any mouth breathing, so the babies have to breathe exclusively through their blocked nasal passages. Babies breathe through their mouth the most when they're crying and completely bypass the nose and the blockage. If you suspect choanal atresia, the answer in real life or on your next test is probably to try passing an NG tube or suction catheter through both nares, and after the diagnosis is confirmed with a CT scan, the baby will need a prompt ENT referral to correct the problem. Congenital diaphragmatic hernia is a fairly rare condition, less than five in 10,000 live births, where the diaphragm develops incompletely and leaves a hole between the abdominal and pleural spaces. This lets some of the abdominal organs usually the bowel, but sometimes the liver or spleen, to slide into the chest, where the crowding inhibits lung development. Affected neonates present with respiratory distress within hours to days after delivery. Most cases are caught on prenatal ultrasound, and affected infants are intubated in the delivery room to secure the airway and have an NG tube placed to decompress the stomach and help the abdominal contents move back where they belong. Ultimately, just about all these babies will need surgery to correct the issue. Neonatal pneumonia is pretty uncommon, and is caused by most of the same organisms you worry about with early sepsis in general, the torch organisms and group B strep. The risk factors are also pretty much the same, with prolonged rupture of membranes, maternal infection, and prematurity all increasing the risk. You should treat these babies like any other septic neonate, plus as much extra respiratory support as they need. Finally, there's tracheoesophageal fistula, an abnormal connection between the esophagus and trachea. Classically, you see cough, choking, and respiratory distress with feeds, although small fistulas can go undiagnosed for years. TEFs are a pretty big topic that could probably fill their own episode, so we'll leave it at that for now. That's all for our episode on neonatal respiratory distress. Anytime you have a distressed infant, job number one is doing whatever you need to do to stabilize him or her, from blow-by-oxygen all the way up to intubation. After that, or honestly, sometimes at the same time, Get a good history and exam to help point you in the right direction. A mildly distressed baby born by C-section with a bright white line on her chest x-ray is probably just TTN, the post-dates baby with funny-looking amniotic fluid is more likely to be meconium aspiration, and RDS is always a concern for anyone born under 35 weeks. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us. We're always working on more episodes, and you can pass along any suggestions or feedback on Twitter at Pedsoup, P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, or by email at Pedsoup at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Pedsoup.